Good day to you, and welcome to Fascinating. I am your host, Rick, from Planet Vulcan. My continuing mission on planet Earth, to search for signs of intelligence and to encourage its spread. One of the most impressive signs of intelligence we Vulcans have discovered on planet Earth is an Earthling of remarkable insights whose ideas richly deserve to be spread. Economist Friedrich Hayek. Most of our contributing editors share an admiration for his work and for the work of his mentor, Ludwig von Mises. Let us repeat here a quote from Professor Hayek that you have heard on this podcast before, words to the effect that our curious task as economists is to explain to people how little they understand about that which they propose to control. Senior contributing editor Prego Donata submits the following essay, which begins with a short bio and goes on to highlight and explain this fascinating earthling's most significant ideas. Prego writes, A short bio. Friedrich Hayek was born in 1899 in Vienna, Austria. He came from a family of several generations of scholars. Interestingly, one of his grandfathers was a teacher of natural sciences, including biology, and his father was a botanist. It seems likely that young Friedrich began learning evolutionary thinking because this current of thought was prominent in his life from an early age. And without getting too far ahead of ourselves, it turned out to be his application of evolutionary thinking to his study of law and economics that made the lasting impression his work eventually created. Please note that some of the discussion that follows is a bit wonkish. And although following it does have value for the curious, you do not necessarily need to follow it in detail if you think it is deeper than you wish to go. The important takeaway in the discussion is the application of evolutionary thinking and the resistance to evolutionary thinking displayed by the devotees of intelligent design thinking. Being a soldier in the army of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in World War I was a significant foundational influence on Hayek's life. He said that the utter insanity he witnessed was bound to draw attention to the problems of political organization. And he believed he could contribute to the solution of said problems as an academic. The University of Vienna was Hayek's springboard, and in addition to his wide-ranging interdisciplinary studies, he also came into contact with people who were connected and influential. It was through these connections that he met the man who was to be his mentor, the eminent economist Ludwig von Mises. Mises was a voice crying in the wilderness in the period following the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. He disagreed strongly with the vast majority of professional economists at the time who considered state ownership of the means of production, coupled with economic planning, to be the wave of the future. With benefit of hindsight, we can see that he was right and most of the profession were not just wrong, but spectacularly wrong. Mises' career suffered because what he was saying did not support the agendas at the time of the powers that be. 
For most of his life, he could not even get a paying job as an economics professor. He was Jewish, and Europe in the 1930s was not a comfortable place to be a Jew. He emigrated to the United States in 1940. He took a position as a professor at New York University, although the university paid him no salary. His salary was paid by foundations whose administrators believed in the value of his work. Back to Hayek's story. As the world descended into the Great Depression of the 1930s, economists struggled to explain how such things could happen. In the theoretical models of the time, prices were assumed to change quickly in response to changes in demand in such a way that equilibrium would be maintained and disruptions in production and employment would be avoided. And yet, financial panics, the name was later changed to depression, then recession, and currently to cyclical downturn, had always occurred from time to time. Although the dynamics behind the panics were not then and still are not well understood, the trigger for these events often was a lack of confidence in the banking system, and bank runs were common. That is, everyone wanted to withdraw their deposits at the same time. Banks that were financially sound, that is, the value of their assets exceeded their liabilities, were often forced out of business along with the banks that were not financially sound because the loans that comprised their assets were not liquid enough to meet the depositors' demands for cash. Economists and government officials began trying to do things to manage the downturns and make them less harmful. The Federal Reserve System, the Fed, in the United States was created in 1912 in response to the Panic of 1907 and all of the associated bank failures with the idea that the Fed would be a lender of last resort and thus keep the solvent banks from failing during bank runs. But when bank runs began shortly after the stock market crash of 1929, the Federal Reserve Board of Governors didn't do this. They refused to make the loans as had been mandated and allowed hundreds of solvent banks to fail and arguably bear much of the blame for the length and severity of the Great Depression. Monetary authorities have at least learned from this debacle, and ever since that time, have responded to periodic crises by flooding the market with liquid assets. Think of the recent quantitative easing as an example of this. British economist John Maynard Keynes of Cambridge University, an English lord whose family had long been influential members of the ruling classes, brought the ruling class viewpoint to the discussion and developed a theory which he claimed would give governments the power to intervene in the economy to offset what he saw as insufficient effective demand during this depression and during depressions in general. Keynes quickly became the darling of the establishment, I suspect because his diagnosis and his prescriptions seemed to justify massive and continuous government intervention. The intelligent design crowd loved him and still loves him. During the Great Depression, another program that was enacted was deposit guarantees mislabeled deposit insurance. 
There's an important distinction between a guarantee and insurance. Deposit insurance would have required a premium that reflected risk. And although banks were required to pay into a fund, the amount they were required to pay, astonishingly, not only did not reflect risk, but actually required the soundest institutions to pay more than the weakest ones. This major flaw in the program led, and is still leading, to repeated major problems in the banking system due to perverse incentives. All problems, of course, being blamed on the greed of bankers. And perhaps most harmfully, the existence of the federal guarantees preempted the evolution of a market for genuine, that is, risk-based and market-priced deposit insurance. I have in front of me a copy of the seventh edition of Economics, an introductory analysis by Paul Samuelson of MIT, a standard college college text for several decades following World War II. In the first chapter, there is a graph showing the effect over time of a higher rate of production growth in the USSR than in the USA. Shows that based on the best data available, At the time, much of the USSR data faked, as it turned out. That present trends continued, the USSR would be outproducing the USA by the mid-90s. Of course, the USSR did not even continue to exist by by the 1990s. Samuelson's caption goes on to say that he always strove to use the art of judgment to arrive at his conclusions free of either wishful, or paranoid thinking. Sounds very sciencey, does it not? We now know, because of lengthy and broad-based attempts to implement economic planning, that Samuelson and most of the rest of the profession were absolutely wrong about it, and pooh-poohed anyone who tried to say that it wouldn't work. There was clearly something deeply amiss in economic thought. And we have people like von Mises and Hayek to thank for pointing out exactly what was amiss, which was, of course, the deep and abiding influence of the intelligent design fallacy. Mises was the first to point out that central planners cannot possibly reproduce the rational calculations of value that emerge from a price system. Mises argued that value is ultimately subjective, that is, There is no such thing as intrinsic value. And then a market price for something emerges by a process of social construction, where the individuals in the market ask and bid until a market-clearing price results. Market-clearing meaning no surpluses or shortages. You can think of a market price as a consensus estimate of value. It is as close as we will ever get to an intrinsic value. Another prominent economist at the time, named Oscar Lange, attempted to refute Mises' argument. He pointed out that planners could theoretically arrive at rational prices by monitoring warehouse inventories. If inventories were increasing, they could just lower the price, and if inventories were being depleted, they could just raise the price. And if inventories were stable, the price was just right, just like a price system, yeah? Lunga's argument was accepted by most economists, even though, as we shall see, his argument was flawed 
probably because they were then, as they are now, eager to fasten on to any explanation that appeared to support their commitment to intelligent design and authoritarian control. Mises responded by saying that Lange's rebuttal merely demonstrated that Lange failed to understand the problem, pointing out that although this technique could at least on paper work for inventories of current goods, it could not even work on paper for capital goods. The capital good is a man-made input to the production process, for example, plant and equipment. Because in a planned economy, there is nothing to monitor for clues about excess supply or demand. Capital goods investment would be entirely the purview of the planners. His argument was correct, but as happens so often in the world of politics, reason did not have much force. Hayek carried the argument about economic planning even further and pointed out that there were two intractable problems facing planners. The information problem, which is that even though planners might have more information than any individual market participant does, they do not and cannot have all the information that exists in distributed form among all market participants. And two, the incentive problem, which is that planners cannot give market participants a reason to be motivated to behave in the way that planners want them to. The incentive problem led to one of Hayek's most important insights, that the only way to motivate market participants in a planned economy to behave correctly is to employ coercion. I'm not saying that we should place too much blame on the economists of that time for their belief that an economic system could be designed, constructed, monitored, and controlled. Although a small minority of economists even then were aware of the flaws in this argument, in all fairness we should acknowledge that the evidence early on was not entirely clear. The argument was still new at the time. The argument is not still new anymore. And the jury is no longer out. The cumulative evidence, as well as scientific logic, is overwhelmingly against the possible efficacy of economic planning. Either or both of these authors is well worth your time if you wish to explore the issues more deeply. For Mises, I recommend Human Action, first published in 1949, which sets out a view of an economic system as something from which order emerges on a macro scale spontaneously from social construction in a way that planners cannot come close to duplicating by employing global top-down direction. The same arguments, of course, apply to those who have given up on planning but still see pervasive intervention and regulation as necessary and proper. Hayek's most influential popular work is The Road to Serfdom, published in 1945, which is where he lays out his argument that national economic planning inevitably leads to authoritarian, if not tyrannical, government. How else could you possibly make the plan work if people have no strong incentive to behave the way you want them to voluntarily? Almost from the beginning, Hayek's ideas were labeled conservative. 
However, if you compare what he was saying to what conservatives were saying, you will find the application of that label to him puzzling, as he himself did. He even went so far as to publish an essay titled, Why I Am Not a Conservative. He described the reason as follows. The decisive objection to any conservatism which deserves to be called such, which is that by its very nature it cannot offer an alternative to the direction in which we are moving. The tug of war between conservatives and progressives can only affect the speed, not the direction, of contemporary developments. Hayek was awarded a Nobel Prize in Economics in 1974, the first economist ever to receive the award who was not an avowed Keynesian. Quote of the day from Mark Twain. Sometimes I wonder if the world is being run by smart people who are putting us on or by imbeciles who really mean it. Thanks to Prego for this enlightening essay. Invite you to have a listen to the next installment of Fascinating. Please provide feedback to these podcasts if you are so inclined. You may contact me by sending an email to senior contributing editor Prego Denada, pregodenada at gmail.com. Live long and prosper.